The sermon today is taken from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in a house uh, in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Jason. Friends, let's pray before we enter into our sermon. Father, we come to you now to a passage that is jam-packed with a lot of beautiful truths. And Father, I pray that as we look into it, our hearts and our minds would be calmed, be energized and focused, and that we'd approach it with the reverence that it deserves, and that we would be sucked back in to the love that you're showing us from your word, and that your covenant of grace that extends from generation to generation that never ends will be the very thing that identifies us. And Christ will be the one whom we are united with and also our Lord, our Savior, and the one that we represent to this world that desperately needs him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're done with our series uh, through the book of John. If you've been with us for the past year and a half, uh, or almost two, really, we're finally done with that. It's a, it was a great book to go through. And the next series we're going to talk about is a series on Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Old Testament. But in between these two series, before we jump into our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to go through a series that's called The Priesthood of All Believers. What is that? The Priesthood of All Believers is this biblical understanding that every Christian is called to preach the gospel and is called to represent Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to the world through our words and through our deeds. All believers, not just pastors, not just full-time church staff, everyone who is in Christ. We're going to take a look at a few passages that talk about that, and today we're going to focus on 1 Peter chapter 2. I know we read verses 1 to 10, but we're just going to focus on verses 4 to 10 today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, where we see the apostle Peter writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And a quick background here, the apostle Peter wrote this book to Christians from various ethnicities, from different, six different regions uh, in the area, and they're being humiliated. They're being rejected, they're being physically attacked, and they're being shamed because they were living out and speaking out the gospel truth. And as I hope that as we study this passage, we'll not only see a clear call for every Christian to represent Christ, 
despite of the cost, but also see the reason why it's often hard to do so. And finally, hopefully, we'll also see the encouragement that God through Peter gives us here, his people, to continue to live as representatives of Christ and of his mercy here on earth. All right, so three things I want to point out. Point one, who a Christian is. Point two, why we often hide. And point three, what will keep us true. Who a Christian is, why we often hide, and what will keep us true. Let's go to the first point, who a Christian is. Now, I didn't want to call this point what a Christian is supposed to do intentionally. Because as Peter will show us, the reason why a Christian does ministry, in other words, the reason why a Christian shares the gospel, the good news through his, his or her words and, and life is not ultimately just because that's what they're supposed to do, but ultimately because it's who they are. What do I mean? Look at verse 4. Peter starts by saying, as you come to him, speaking about Jesus Christ, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Peter starts the passage by reminding these Christians of what happened to Jesus. Jesus, the living stone, was rejected. He was crucified. Now, why was he rejected and crucified? Well, you can say he was rejected and crucified because he preached the gospel and because he lived out the gospel. That would be absolutely true. But a more foundational reason Peter is telling us, is trying to show us here, of why Jesus was rejected and crucified is because he is the gospel, is because he is the good news. Let me explain. The living stone imagery that Peter uses here in verse 4 it references a ton of Old Testament passages, but more explicitly perhaps, and later we'll see this, is Isaiah 28. What happened in Isaiah 28 is that the Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, got a bit prideful. They built a wall around their city, Jerusalem, and they think that this wall is what's going to save them from death. And they grew proud of this, this wall. And it's not wrong to want to build a wall to protect yourself from outside armies. That makes total sense. But the language that the Israelites used to describe this wall is as if this wall was going to save them from death itself, from Shoal, from the overwhelming whip, as we'll see uh, it quoted here in a little bit. They put too much hope on a good thing and made it ultimate. Listen to Isaiah's rebuke here in Isaiah 28 to these Israelites. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, as if this wall allowed them to make a deal with death itself. And with Shoal, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. And Isaiah rebuked them, saying, no, you're not to put your ultimate trust in this wall. Verse 16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. What will save them from death, God says to his people in the Old Testament, what will save them from the overwhelming whip from Shoal is not, the, is not the wall that they built based on their own strength, but the cornerstone that he himself will lay down. Now, who does Peter describe as the cornerstone in verse 4? Jesus. You see, Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the one that's going to save us from death, from Shoal, from the overwhelming whip. He is the good news. He was rejected, not ultimately because of what he said and did. He was rejected by the world ultimately because of who he is. In other words, for Jesus, preaching and living out the gospel, the good news, that he is God, who has come to die on the cross for our sins. Preaching and living out that truth out was not a matter of vocation. 
It was a matter of identity. After describing Jesus' identity as the living stone and how he was rejected by the culture because of who he is, Peter quickly transitions to the Christian's identity in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now notice, Peter also addresses the Christians here in regards to their identity. Here are some truths Peter says that is true about you, Christian, if you here are in Christ. One, you are living stones of a spiritual house. In other words, a temple. The temple in the Old Testament is a place where God's presence resides. We collectively are being built up, each one of us, as living stones that make up a temple. The church is, in other words, both the small C church, as in your local church congregation, and the big C church collectively around the world, organically, is where God's presence through the Holy Spirit resides. There's an old story of a foreign king that went to Sparta, and because he heard that the Spartans had this great big wall that protected the city, he was curious. Let me learn from the Spartan king about how he built this amazing wall. And when he went to the, uh, to the Spartan city to learn more about this wall, he got there and he saw no wall. All he saw were people, Spartans, walking around. He was confused. And when the foreign king asked, where are your renowned walls? The Spartan king simply said, you're looking at him. Every man a brick. We are all being built up into God's holy temple. Every man a brick. Each Christian is a living stone together built up where he, in, to a place where he resides, as he resides in us through his spirit too. You're not only a temple, you are a holy priesthood. If the temple is the place where God resides in the Old Testament, a priest in the Old Testament was tasked with mediating between God and man. Priests would kill lambs and other animals and offer up sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people so that the people can approach a holy God without being consumed by him because of their sin. Christian, Peter uses these two imageries to explain who you are in Christ. You are a temple where God resides. You are priests called to mediate between man and God. Now, Peter makes it absolutely clear that we are not the ultimate temple. We're not the ultimate priest. The ultimate temple and high priest is Jesus Christ. That's why he mentioned him first in verse 4. Jesus is God himself who has come to us in flesh to be the ultimate temple where God meets man. He is the ultimate uh, high priest who has paid for our sacrifices for our sins. But in a sense, as redeemed sinners who do have a relationship with God through the mercy of Christ and what he did for us on the cross, the church as a collective and individually, we are priestly temples where we are called to point people to Christ, to the gospel. Now, okay, I went through that whole spiel and Peter kind of went to Old Testament imageries and round and round and round just to explain a simple command. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> he could have just said, hey, preach the gospel. He could have just said, hey, live out the gospel. That would have been direct and clear and efficient. Why did he have to go over and over again um, uh, rather than just giving us a command? Because he wanted to make it absolutely clear to you Christians that preaching out the gospel and living out the gospel is not just something you do. It's who you are. You do it because when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, your innate identity has changed. 
You're a new creation, not just in the sense of your past guilts are now forgiven, but you're also God's temple and many priests. We're called to point people to Christ. It's who you are. In other words, preaching the gospel for the Christian is not ultimately a matter of vocation. It's a matter of identity. Do you see how this can be deep encouragement for Christians who are being persecuted back then? Remember, Peter was writing this to Christians who were, being, who were spread out in six different regions. Uh, it consists of various ethnicities, and they were being persecuted for pointing people back to Christ through their words and through their deeds. But Peter didn't say, he didn't say this. He didn't say, well done, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Keep doing your job. He didn't say that. Instead, he said here, well done. You're being who you are. You're being who you are. Be God's temple. Be priests that lead people to Christ. That's who you are. You see how that would be a much deeper and thicker encouragement for them? As these Christians persevere through suffering, and notice who he said it to, not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the church staff. Who is this book d- directed to? If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, all the Christians in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All the Christians. See, the reason I think we're often tempted to think that the work of sharing the gospel and doing ministry and living out the gospel is a work just for pastors and just for full-time church staff, not every Christian, is because perhaps we still think about the work of ministry as if it's merely a vocation, as if it's an act of doing a job rather than an identity. It's not an act of doing. It's ultimately an act of being. See, if we view it as a vocation, we're going to say things like this. I'm not going to do it unless I get results, which is what you would do in a job. But if you view ministry as an identity, you would probably say something like this. I can't help myself. I want to do it even though I don't get results because that's who I am. And this, again, would be very encouraging to persecuted Christians because, look, they weren't exactly seeing hundreds of churches being planted. They weren't seeing hundreds of people coming to Christ. They weren't seeing the culture in, in this, in, in, in where they're at being transformed by the gospel. All you're seeing here is rejection after rejection after rejection. These Christians are made to be outcasts. The more they preach the gospel, the more humiliated they were by the people around them. They were mentally, verbally, vocationally, and often physically abused. To these discouraged, downcast Christians, Peter said the most encouraging thing. He said, it's okay. Don't let the lack of results discourage you. Remember, you're not doing this for results. You're doing this because it's who you are. It reminds me of Peter himself in his own words in the book of Acts when he was being persecuted for the gospel. Remember what he said? He didn't say, sorry, fellas, I got to keep doing this because this is my job. What did he say? He said, I got to keep doing this, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is who I am. So, on the flip side, Christian, the question for us is that if we're not pointing people back to Christ through words and deed, if we're not joining in the work of sharing his gospel to others, here's the question. It's not just, why aren't you doing your job? But ultimately, it's this. Why aren't you being who you are? It's a little more empathetic, but at the same time more convicting. 
right? Because at the heart level, we're asking ourselves this. It's not just, why am I disobeying? But it's this, why am I hiding? Why am I hiding? What's causing me to hide? Why do I find myself sometimes to be so embarrassed of Jesus and of who I am in him? Which leads us to our second point, why we often hide. We see that in the second half of verse 5, Peter is saying that if we truly live out our identity to the world as spiritual temples and a holy priesthood, and we point people back to Jesus Christ through word and deed, it's hard, and it'll often lead to sacrifice. People might reject and humiliate you, and I know stories in this room that speaks to just that. Now, okay, I'm not saying we have to be jerks about it, Okay? As we share the gospel, be culturally aware, be engaging, be winsome, sensitive, humble, contextual, and kind in the way you speak and live out to gospel in the culture that you're in, of course. I want to point out here that Peter himself was being culturally sensitive. Look at verse 6. Here he explicitly quotes the Old Testament passage that we alluded to earlier, Isaiah 28, verse 16, but he added a phrase in it. Okay, remember when you read it earlier, God was talking about a cornerstone Israel, right? Uh, uh, that the Israel's put hope in this wall, but you, you need to instead put hope in this living stone. And, and it ended like this. Whoever believes will not be in haste. But if you read the way Peter quoted here in verse 6, it's different. He said this, for it stands in scripture, Old Testament, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Okay, so he quotes the whole thing. And then the end, he says this, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He added the in him. Where did Peter get the additional in him from? Because, stick with me, it'll turn around back to the point I was making, because the in him is how the Targum speaks of this passage. The Targum, stick with me, is a collection of Jewish verbal teachings in that culture that explains the Old Testament. So rabbis would come up and teach about the Old Testament, and when they taught about Isaiah 28 verse 16, they added in him in that phrase. It was a cultural practice that was very influential in Peter's day. And in the Targum, the Jewish teachers added that phrase because they assumed that the cornerstone God was referring to in Isaiah 28 verse 16 is a future Messiah. See, Peter had high cultural IQ. That's my point. He was informed of the cultural practices and literature. He understood the worldview that they had and what influenced those views. He was contextualized. He spoke in a way that people would understand because he made sure to connect, he, he made sure to connect the in him with, 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 his, uh, with him quoting Isaiah 28. But here's my point. This culturally sensitive Peter, who was well aware of cultural lingos and contexts, and is more than willing to accommodate when permissible, is the same Peter that says, don't be overly anxious about rejection. He said, it's all right. Keep going. Persevere through them. Be who you are. You know what that means? That means sometimes you can be culturally sensitive. You can be very aware and contextualized and kind and accommodating in every way to your culture, but yet still be rejected for the gospel. That happens. You can still be cast aside by your culture, still looked down upon and humiliated, and you could still see no pragmatic fruit for your labor. And you know what the cultural word Peter said? That's okay. This rejection is your act of spiritual sacrifice. It's okay. It's okay that you're not seeing hundreds of people come to Christ or tons of churches uh, coming about or huge cultural things happen. It's okay. Persevere through it. You will not be put to shame. And that's it, isn't it? That word. Shame. 
that really is, I think, the reason why a lot of people often hide from who they are in Christ. It's because they're embarrassed about it. Because we're often shamed for the gospel. And friends, shame is a powerful force. If you look back in your life story, and you think about the pains that are most memorable, think about the events that has caused you the deepest wounds. More than likely, I think, the pains and the wounds that come to mind are not the physical ones, although, of course, for major extreme physical injuries, you know, you might remember those, but for the most part, I think, the wounds that you remember the most, we remember the most, are the wounds that are birthed in times of humiliation. It's the times when we felt shame. Perhaps it's a name you were called in middle school. I remember that name till today, and it haunts me. Maybe it's a group of friends that slowly pushed you out. Maybe it's that guy or that girl who clearly read your WhatsApp because the check marks were blue, but never responded. When your parents express disappointment and they're embarrassed of you. When your loved ones find you to not be enough. Those are often the memories that stick and scar, not the physical ones. And look at the beginning of verse 7. If Peter ended verse 6 with this motif of shame, he begins verse 7 with what phrase? So the honor is for you who believe. Why does Peter narrow down to the themes of shame and honor here? Because he knows that's the reason why we're often in hiding. We're terrified of being shamed, of losing face. Financial or even physical repercussions we may be willing to bear, but the loss of honor, to lose face? Shame was the ghost that haunted the Christians back then into hiding, and I believe that same ghost looms among us today. But why is shame so frightening to us? I think this is worth exploring a bit. Let's give a few minutes to this. I think a good way to understand shame is by differentiating it with its close sibling, guilt. See, guilt is more manageable than shame. Shame is much less predictable. What do I mean? One, guilt is a matter of legal status. Shame is a matter of communal opinion. You can feel shame even when you're not individually guilty. Okay, for example, someone could be bullied at school or at work, be called names, be made fun of, feel excluded, forced to do embarrassing things, chastised, abused, gossiped about. All this would push somebody toward the feeling of shame. Although you're not guilty, you've done nothing legally wrong. You see, shame has more to do with communal opinion compared to guilt that has more to do with individual legal status. That's one. That's why it's scary too. Guilt is related more to what you've done, whereas shame is related more to who you are. What's more painful? For your parents to say, you failed or you're a failure. Of course, the second one, because they're speaking, they're using language that speaks into not just your actions, but to your being. Someone who feels guilty would say, I've done something bad. Someone who's feeling shame would say, I'm a bad person. It's a matter of being, it's who you are. That's why it's such a powerful force. Third, last one. Not only is it a matter of a communal opinion, not only does it speak it deep into our identity, but three, the last thing I think that makes shame really scary is that because of those two things, the end date becomes fuzzy. Because it's highly influenced by communal opinion and speaks so deeply into our identity, the end date becomes fuzzy. See, I can legally be a prisoner because I've committed a crime. But after I've done my time, there's an end date to my status as a prisoner. At some point, I'm released from the prison and I'm no longer on paper, le legally, a prisoner. 
but I could still be imprisoned by the deep shame of what I've done. You see? By, by how my mistakes has influenced who I am and how my community views me. I can't control that. I don't know when I'm going to stop feeling this way. I don't know when people are going to stop viewing me this way. So the end date becomes fuzzy. Shame is powerful and scary because one, it's highly affected by communal opinion. Two, it speaks deeply into your identity. And three, there's no clear end date to it. And who wants to deal with that beast? <laughs> Some cultures even say it's better to die than feel shame. And to ask somebody to take shame for the gospel, that's a big ask. So what does Peter do in our next passage? He continues in verses 7 to 8 by quoting more Old Testament passages. I really don't have time to get into it right now. But the point here, Peter is saying in verse 7 and verse 8, that God is sovereign over it. And sometimes it's not a matter of contextualization. Sometimes people just find the gospel to be a bad aroma. And no matter how you present it, that's okay. You're doing well. Keep going. Okay. Hearing that God is sovereign and that I'm okay in the midst of my shame as I present Christ, as encouraging as that may be, if you're like me, it's not quite enough to combat shame, is it? It still puts me into hiding. It is somewhat comforting for Peter to say that, but I need more. And thank goodness Peter was empathetic enough to give his readers more encouragement in verses 9 to 10. But before I move on to that, I just want to quickly, I think an important side note, is remind you the reason why I think Peter is able to empathize so well with this topic is because he himself failed in the past. Remember the book of Galatians? What did Paul rebuke Peter for? Peter was hiding for who he is in Christ. The apostle Peter himself, one of Jesus' closest disciples, the guy who's writing this book. You remember what happened in Galatians? Some big shots came to the church where Peter was in, and he was embarrassed of the gospel for the sake of their approval. And Peter stopped living out the gospel. He got insecure. He too grew succumb to shame. He was a victim to shame. It was too strong of a force. So um, uh, here's where we go to his next point. And although this event in Galatians happened 10 to 14 years ago, Peter now can speak to us uh, and explain to us uh, as one who failed with us how to continue to be true to the gospel in spite of shame. Last point, what will keep us true? I know Peter's been quoting a lot of Old Testament passages, uh, and, and here's one more. I promise this will be the last one. After Peter calls Christians to keep living in step with who they are as representatives of Christ, and after acknowledging the cost that comes with that, we come to verse 9, where we find Peter quoting Exodus chapter 19. Verse 9. But you are, again, he goes to the level of identity, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, why did he point those things out? Remember the three things we said earlier that makes shame so scary? One, it's highly affected by communal opinion. Two, it speaks deeply into your identity. And three, there's no clear end date to it. Peter here in verse 9, as he quotes Exodus 19, addresses those three things. First thing that makes it scary, shame is highly affected by communal opinion. What's the first thing Peter reminds his readers of here on that list in verse 9? You're a chosen race. Remember, these were Christians that came from tons of different locations and different ethnicities, but yet Peter reminded them that they are one race, meaning that you have a community now, a new family that goes even deeper than ethnicity 
and transcends nationality and culture. In other words, whatever your earthly communities think of you and your gospel, you have another community of redeemed sinners united by the blood of Christ. Guys, maybe the reason why we're afraid of what the world out there thinks of us is because we don't yet feel deeply loved and accepted by the family we have in here. We don't have a community that ensures us yet. If shame is a matter of communal opinion, Peter here is reminding you, you have a new community now that can cheerleader you through that, also as representatives of, of the gospel. Second thing that makes shame so scary is that it speaks deeply into our identity. Remember earlier we said that if guilt says, I've done something bad, shame says, I'm a bad person. Look at what Peter reminds these shamed Christians about themselves in verse 9. Not only that you have a new community, but who are you? You were a royal priesthood. Your royalty. Peter's confronting shame head on, on its own playing field, at the level of identity. Your royalty. Remember that. And when you forget that, hopefully you have a community to remind you of it every day. Third thing that makes shame so scary is that shame has no end date. Look at the last description in verse 9 as it quotes Exodus 19. You are a people for his own possession. I want to focus on the word for there. What does the word for his own possessions tell you? That this is pointing to a future reality. You are a people for his own possessions. One day you will made into his possessions. Now, does that mean you're not his possession now? Of course you are. Christians are God's possessions now. But scripture speaks of a day when tears will be no more. And when Christ comes again. And when this side of eternity will end. And his people will experience fuller and perfect communion with him in the new heavens and new earth eternally. There is an end date. It will end. So let's summarize. Peter says, keep being who you are. Share the gospel. Keep pointing others to him. Be sensitive and culturally informed as you do so. But you know what? Sometimes you can do that and still be rejected and shamed. That's okay. Keep going. Endure it. Keep loving the world. How? One, by confiding in the Christian community you're in, your local church, a group of Christian friends maybe. Two, by reminding yourself of who you are, your royalty. You're the child of a king. That's your identity, not what they say. Three, by remembering that there will be an end date to it. There will be an end date to it. You will at one day stop being put to shame. Now, okay, those three things are good and well, but I think we still need something more. I think some of us, including me, uh, for some of us, including me, these reasons aren't enough to drive us out of hiding and live out the true gospel and be the priests that we are. Why? Because if you've noticed, these three things that we pointed out earlier were merely three ways to endure shame once you're in it. But none of those things actually give the Christian a reason to come out of hiding and risk being shamed in the first place. Confiding in a church community, remembering that you're royalty, finding rest in the fact that there's an end date. Those are merely three ways of how to endure shame once you're in it. But it doesn't actually give you the initial drive to follow Jesus and be willing to enter into that shame for his sake. To get there, you got to love Jesus more than you love your own honor. That's the only thing that's going to drive you out of hiding in the first place, which is why Peter reminds us of these truths in verses 9 to 10. Friends, why can Peter call you royalty? Why can Peter call us a holy nation? 
Why can he so boldly say that every Christian belongs to God? He's never met you. He doesn't know how moral, how moral you are, the things you've done. It's because we are those things, not because we deserve it within ourselves, not because we've earned it, but why? Let's look at the end of verse 9. Because you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Why have you become royalty as a child of a king? Why can you be called holy even though your life often doesn't represent that? Because of mercy. What mercy? What mercy? Go back to verse 7. Peter said, Jesus was able to become the cornerstone because he was rejected. He was able to save you because he was rejected. Friends, you know why we can be called holy? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and took the curse for us. You know why you can be called royalty? Because the king of kings put on human flesh and endured humiliation even unto the cross for you. You know why you can be included into a new community under Christ? Because he was rejected by his. You know why there's an end date to our shame? Not because we deserve an end date, but because the eternal God entered into time and on the cross took our shame for us. God chose to love us who don't deserve any of it. And even after we've received his love, we're often ashamed of that love. God chose to embrace you and I, a people who would often be embarrassed at him. How merciful is that? How can he do that? Because he took our sins and shame upon himself. And he, our high priest, was washed clean, washed us clean by his blood. Look, unless you realize that you've been embraced by a God who laid down his honor for you, you will never love him more than you love your own honor. And you'll always be in hiding. But if you see him, the one who has come and endured rejection for you, who gave up all worldly honors for you so that he can have you, then, then perhaps you'll come out of hiding. Then perhaps you'll begin to risk and proclaim his excellencies to a world that desperately needs him but yet often doesn't want it. Be who you are, Christian. Don't hold on too tightly to the honors that you might gain in this world, whether today or tomorrow. Put on your priestly garments. Offer up spiritual sacrifices, as costly as they may be, to your high priest who has paid the ultimate cost for you. This is a call, not just for pastors, but to all of his people, because ministry isn't a matter of vocation, but rather a matter of identity. This is who you are. We are his temple. We are a priesthood of believers. Be who you are to this world that desperately needs him but does not want him. Let's pray. Father, the very love that we have received from you is often the very love that we're embarrassed of. The merciful Christ that come and took on flesh on behalf of us is the Christ that we often hide. Father, let your love and mercy and let the unsurpassable greatness of your kindness and patience in which you have endured and showed for us on that cross that you may now have us as your children. Let that be the thing that 
pushes us out of hiding. As we see a God who forsook his worldly honor for us and for his glory, we now love you back and forsake that thing which we probably hold onto most tightly, even more than money and time, which is honor. Take our fingers off it, let it hold onto you. And Father, as we endure the shame that the world might give for our love of you, bring us back to the community we're in, remind us of who we are, and remind us first and foremost, please, that there is an end date. For now, we are called to love and give ourselves to others and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with me.